0: This is Publishing Talks, a podcast about books, publishing, and the business of books. I'm David Wilk, your host. Today I'm talking to Jane Friedman, who is a, I would say on some level, a publishing guru for a lot of people. Uh, She offers um, consulting services, information, and guidance to a lot of self-publishing authors and independent publishers, and publishes a really invaluable newsletter called The Hot Sheet, which I would definitely recommend to anyone listening who is interested in the book business and what's happening in it. Um, Her website is janefriedman.com. We'll mention that again just in case, uh, because I think it's also a website worth visiting. And after that lengthy introduction, how are you, Jane?
1: I'm doing well. Thank you, David.
0: Thanks for doing this. I know um, you're busy, so I'll be respectful of your time and start asking you questions. I sort of consider you a an observer of the book industry. So my natural first question, which I'm sure you hear from people all the time, is now that we are, let's say, maybe we're not over with the pandemic, but we are emerging from the pandemic, mm-hmm. at least we think we are. You yes. may not be. What is your kind of general sense of how it has affected writing and authors and readers and books? And I know that's a big, big question. <laughs> with a you know, but maybe you can pick out a part of it to focus on.
1: The most visible effect is the supply chain. I mean, there, it be, and partly because everyone's still feeling the pain. Of the supply chain problems. I think it might even be worse this year than it was during the pandemic. So to dig into that a little deeper, we're talking about printing, paper, shipping, warehouse workers. Um, so not just the cost of the goods, but getting the goods to their final destination and then the people who make all of that happen. There are a lot of problems with publishing supply chain that predate the pandemic, which is why it's so bad now. And then the pandemic just exacerbated a lot of these problems. So we're seeing authors whose books are being delayed to market. We're seeing publishers who are having to schedule many, many, many months in advance their print runs You know, before they even really have a good idea of what sort of print run they want. They have to get the paper now. They have to commit to quantities now. And the prices are going up. So, I think we're going to see book prices go up in a really significant way this year. I'm seeing authors who are talking about um, getting reprints or like getting new copies of their books in, um, and the price is up $5. So, I think book pricing hasn't kept up with inflation even before inflation's really noticeably started. So, there may actually be some good news in this bad news situation, um, but I think everyone's just a little bit anxious. And nervous about how this is going to play out. I mean, we're we're also coming off of an amazing increase in book sales, uh, print sales for sure. But generally speaking, all of U.S. based publishing was up about nine percent on average. And the big five New York houses saw their best profits, like in the last ten or twenty years, maybe even in history. So, I think you know with the supply chain issues like coming on top of this really high demand it's just wow i mean i don't, we'll see how things fall out um but i know that this is it's a great concern to both authors and publishers
0: that is an experience that i share on a daily basis in my work and sometimes when you're in the midst of it it's hard to see the contours the broader contours so talking to printers who are sending price increases monthly uh, based on what they're seeing from paper mills that are sending them price increases monthly, if not mm-hmm. more? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can confirm that all to be that is all true. I think the hardest thing for the publishers that I know of to adapt to is the change in their uh, production cycle. That um, if it was possible to produce a hardcover in five weeks before and a paperback in four weeks, now you're looking at 25 weeks for Mm -hmm. a hardcover, in some cases more, and 18 or 20 weeks for a paperback. And the difficulty extends to what you alluded to, which is the release of a new title, Mm -hmm. because you're required to... Um, make decisions so early before you have enough information. Uh, You don't know how many to print, Um, so you have to guess. And I think we will eventually see some fallout from that because in in addition to the higher price, Unicost, publishers are going to print more books because they can't afford to run out. It used to be if you ran out, you would do a reprint. Reprint might take three weeks, and you'd have a little... Time to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, but now a reprint might take 18 weeks. And so by the time you get new books in or new shipment in, the, your uh, demands evaporate and you will print books that you're never going to sell. And I, I'm sure, I, I'm wondering whether you're hearing this as well um, that there's increased pressure from Amazon because of the supply chain problems um, that they are requiring delivery further in advance. And guarantee of delivery, so that if you're late, you have to change your pub date. If you change your pub date, then all of the media that you arranged or worked toward that is aimed at public, you know, to start. You, you don't want too much media happening until after the book's out. But what if you've got stuff going on because you've promoted the book to media, and then you have to delay publication for two weeks, three weeks, a month? I, you know, you sort of thought that smaller publishers and authors could be more nimble because they don't have the big infrastructure and the bureaucracy of being a publisher to contend with. But in fact, they're dealing with the same economics and supply chain issues. Smaller publishers are dealing with the same ones that larger ones are. And while they can be more nimble, there are no options to be nimble with. Yeah. So are publishers and authors you speak to thinking about any kind of radical behavioral change, uh, or are they just still kind of trying to figure out what to do right now?
1: I think it's more of the latter. I, I've noticed there's a lot more criticism of Ingram lately. Um, I think it's partly born out of the frustrations that we've been discussing right here, but also there's there aren't that many places to run when you're stuck in a corner, and there's one small publisher in particular, Ann Truebeck, who I'm thinking of, she does a great newsletter called Notes from a Small Press. And you know, she's her books are distributed by a division of Ingram, and you know, they they're pressuring her for information very early in the process before she's prepared to really commit. Um, with a small press, you know, they're often. Operating on really thin margins, they don't have as much resource, obviously, as a big five. There's not a lot, a whole lot of room for error. And you know, she's being forced into commitments really early by Ingram that she doesn't want to make. She's also being pressured not to raise her prices. Um, But she's like, you, you know, but my paper costs are going up, my printing costs are going up. I can't keep the prices you think I ought to have. Um, And so I can see that's just generating a lot of annoyance and frustration with um, a major player and it's hard, but who's she going to go to? I mean, (laughs)
0: because all, all of the distributors, I think are probably, I think it's safe to say they're all experiencing the same Mm -hmm. stress in their, in their own work. I guess where I was sort of going with that question was trying to figure out whether it will change um, people to you or, or. Publishers and authors using more print on demand or short run digital printing um, and more emphasis on digital um, formats, that is to say ebooks. But that so far we have not seen any move on the part of consumers. Now, when you talked about price increases, this goes kind of harks back to, for me to maybe 10 years ago, where when ebooks were emerging in a bigger way than they had ever been before um, the, there was some th- discussion about um, price of ebooks affecting demand of print books and my you know I had thought at one point that if publishers saw in uh, too many ebooks selling and changing the, not too many but if the percentage of books sold was higher, of ebooks to print that that would mean you'd print for your books your costs would go up and as print costs went up ebook costs do not go up therefore the differential in price would increase and more people more buyers would feel like buying an ebook was practical so that has never happened um, when when the price of ebooks has run roughly uh, less than two-thirds of the cost of a print book uh, people will opt for the print book but if the price of an ebook is 4.99 5.99 and the print book is 30 um or 35 then you have to wonder is there a point at which a larger number of people than ever before say i'll buy the ebook now instead of printing 5000 copies you're going to print 3000 print you know maybe then you're going to print 2000 then you're going to print 1000 is that dynamic you know even possible
1: well, I do think one of the paradoxical things is that given the supply chain issues with print, that there hasn't been more of a concerted effort to look at digital formats and think about the pricing, particularly of ebooks. books um, all, all I can say is that you know there, there's all this delight uh, and celebration of how much print sales have increased and the staying power of prints and... Um, And I do question basically every time that story comes up, uh, with supply chain and print increasing in cost, why aren't we looking at digital more? Um, I I don't have a good answer. I, I am seeing that, you know, small presses are looking more at direct to consumer sales as a way to, um save their bacon, boost their profits. Um, and I do think they've had a lot of success selling direct-to-consumer, especially since the pandemic started. It kind of lit a fire that was we really needed where these small presses, and this includes bookstores as well, realized, hey, you know, having a social media presence and having an email newsletter can really help with our sales if our doors are closed <laughs> otherwise. Um, so I have seen that ramp up. But, you know, you've got, it's just such a bizarre dynamic in that, now, here's something that came from Ingram directly. They saw hardcover print-on-demand sales skyrocket uh, in 2021. They even did a whole session, it was kind of a marketing session, to publishers saying, you need to get all your books into hardcover POD even if you don't think people want it because they will sell. So there has been that. Um, there has been an upswing in print on demand. There is no question. And back when um, it was all the years are blurring together now. I was it was June twenty twenty. The George Floyd murder. Mm-hmm. There was yes, yeah, June
0: twenty. Uh, the summer of the of two thousand twenty.
1: Yes, there was this huge surge of. Uh, social justice books onto the New York Times bestseller list. And a lot of those books wouldn't have been on there if it weren't for print-on-demand fulfilling orders when the print runs ran out. So we definitely, you're right that I think print-on-demand is helping there and Ingram is again benefiting tremendously because they're a huge print-on-demand provider for publishers. And then of course, Amazon does print-on-demand too, but they're, at least as far as I can tell, they're mainly serving authors uh, who are putting out right. print editions? Well, the
0: problem for publishers is that if Amazon prints the books, then you're really not available broadly. Whereas yeah. if you're a publisher, you need to be available in all markets. So you ha- almost have to print with right. Lightning Source or Ingram Spark. Um, yeah, I do think that one of the, I mean, I, I'm curious to know your thoughts about ebooks in this sense. And it does feel that the development of ebooks, both in terms of technology, hardware, and software, has not gone very far. You know, the ebooks have been, I would say, popularized in the early 2000s by primarily but Amazon gets credit for that, you know, mm-hmm. by uh, creating the market. Uh, but they haven't really paid much attention to it. And, you know, Amazon is no longer what they were 15 years ago, um, a primarily book entity uh, gradually expanding into other markets they are now fully something else where books may be psychologically or spiritually interesting to them but it doesn't feel like they've invested anything in ebook ebooks at all um, and in fact have done a poor job uh, comparatively uh, with their software um, and so you wonder now it may be possible that just there isn't, a business there. You know, there just isn't enough demand on the part of readers um, for any more than they already have. And smartphones are adequate. Why should you invest in a, another device, um, you know, an e-reader? Um, maybe the rise of tablets has kind of stanched the development of any hardware business that's dedicated to books. But it does feel that there just hasn't been much done to make the e-reading experience a better one than it is um and again you think well maybe there isn't anything you know maybe (laughs) everything that's been tried has just failed uh because people readers tell you what they want you know they're not powerless they determine whether an ebook is what they want to buy or if they're going to buy audio which is Course, what they are doing. So maybe all of that is for naught. But the whole issue, what you started out talking about in terms of price, I think is a really, really important point. And that is that book prices have been artificially, in a sense, artificially low because we've lived in a period where uh, materials costs have been lower than they probably should have been. Mm -hmm. Um, We had plenty of printers, we had a lot of paper and business was doing pretty well i don't think it's coming back that i you know once printing plants close once paper plants close they do they do not uh as somebody i I forget maybe it was in the hot sheet somebody said if you had a spare two billion dollars lying around you would not invest it in a (laughs) in a uh, printing facility or a paper plant yes um and i'm afraid that that's the future you know that we are looking at something different than we have had before and we it's we're still waiting for the emergence of a new normal
1: yeah i i can't argue with you on on the fact that ebook reading technology has not really progressed much beyond you know the first couple kindle models um What's interesting, though, is that I'm seeing, especially in younger generations, a real, uh, I don't think they're, let me back up, mobile reading, I think is happening at a, a, a more rapid rate than perhaps traditional publishers have recognized. And I say that um, because I don't, I don't know that they're actively publishing things that fit these mobile platforms unless they're in partnership with a company. So I'm thinking here of Wattpad, mm-hmm. uh, Radish, Webtoon, uh, and, and there are others. When you combine these reading and writing platforms, which are primarily read on a mobile device, the stories they're they're usually in serialized format. Some of them are like web comics, uh, manga. they are illustrations, but not you know it depends on the platform what this what sort of genre you're likely to be reading, if it's illustrated or not. But I find that those reading experiences, those apps, that might be the digital reading that we're really moving toward. Um, It makes a lot more sense to me, you know, just given attention spans and how we like to read and what devices we tend to have on us at any particular time and also the cost. So (laughs) coming full circle to your point about pricing, you know, E-books are expensive, especially if they're coming from a traditional publisher and self-publishers, that's their leverage point. That's how they manage to build really successful businesses is by selling ebooks at a price that the market thinks is sensible. Or people are getting into Kindle Unlimited, which is Amazon's subscription program, pay $10 a month, all you can read. Um, so the the reading and writing apps like Wattpad and others, they're either free or they're on a freemium model or they're on some you know uh, less expensive model than your traditional ebook. So I think you know part of this traditional publishers haven't really helped themselves, um, but there's a long history to that that I'm sure you know about related to the Department of Justice and all sorts of. Uh, yeah, <laughs> complicated but there, yeah.
0: matters. There, there are some issues that is true that have that would prevent a sort of industry wide anything from happening. Mm-hmm. So it looks like innovation always comes from the outside because the industry is prevented from doing anything that they could ever agree on. Yeah, and so, but it's. I think you're right about the mobile platforms, and it also made me think about you know this. I really am interested in how manga has grown in America. I think that there are, and kind of illustrated storytelling in general, yeah. not just manga itself, but all the forms of graphic novels that exist now. If you wanted to read a 100-manga series, you would pay $1,200, $1,500 to, to read it uh, because you'd have to buy each book. But if you read it digitally, you don't pay anywhere near that amount. You know, the cost is much lower. But it's also fostered an amazingly robust, illegal
1: mm-hmm.
0: market of of basically uh, pirated editions because the price is too high. And, you know, if you see anything pirated, that means that the price is too high for the market. And I think publishers probably have been lucky because most of the books that publishers publish are not pirated because nobody will, you know, nobody wants to go to the trouble of buying a pirated edition, and the price is not that bad for the average reader. Um, but it is interesting to think about all of the, uh, if you add up all the reading that's being done in different forms that may not be traditional book forms, uh, and now I think about newsletters with uh, Substack. You know, I have a newsletter. I read a lot of them. There's a lot of, and there are some authors who are playing with the newsletter um, format. Thinking about yeah. L, L. Griffin, uh, mm-hmm. who's been publishing on Substack. And then there's Kickstarter and Patreon, uh, which have, they, they are also viable publishing platforms. And I think maybe under recognized by most traditional publishers uh, for what they, for the potential that they have, um, partly because it's um, the format is anathema to the idea of presenting valuable art or valuable content, and you don't want to be seen as needing money for financing your project. You have enough money. It's not about the money. It's actually about the marketing. So I think that. There's potential there, but it's also just to your point, the expansion of the definition of what publishing is, and the change in formats may be underrecognized, and the fact that long form reading may not always be the best form for any given reader or for any given piece of content. Which, I mean, we sort of know that intellectually, but in terms of business, I don't think it's been fully addressed partly because of another thing you said early on and that is you just finished the best year in your history making more money than you've (laughs) ever made in your life why should you be worrying about you know the change, like the change in reading habits of the general public but i think that's precisely the point it may be (laughs) what i I think i was watching a you know a uh, a netflix show the other night and the character the main one of the characters was dying and the healer said, "Oh, I've seen this before. Just before dying, you feel suddenly tremendously alive."
1: Mm-hmm. And I
0: was thinking, "Wow, that's such a metaphorical um, statement about any given industry that's in—you know—thinks it's doing great. They feel really alive, but it could well be that death is right around the corner."
1: <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, I don't I don't want to um, be accused of saying publishing is dead or books are dead since that's (laughs) become a horrible cliche. But yeah, I think that, um, there are going to be some nasty surprises, let's say unfolding over the next, what, three to five years, maybe just by looking at what's growing and what's contracting, um, the manga, the comics, the graphic novel growth. I mean, if you look at the adult fiction sales in the U S and you look at what drove that, it's comics, manga, and graphic novels, <laughs> and I, I just don't know that if, like, if you ask the average reader what's driving sales right now, I don't think they would realize that's such a huge volume um, of of the business that's happening.
0: Do you think we have a another leading question on my part? But do you think we have enough kind of demographic research on readers for publishers and authors too to understand? who the market is and what the market actually is buying and reading. I, I, I'm i not sure we do.
1: Publishing is terrible at consumer research. Um, I mean, there is the Codex group um, that does occasional studies that are useful, but they're not usually made public. Like, you know, the right. publishers pay for that, and it's proprietary. Right. Um, there was a good study that came out of Portland State University mm-hmm. last year um, that tried to look at you know, specifically younger, more diverse uh, readerships and how, um, how they're very omni-channel. how uh, They don't prefer one way method of consumption or one channel of consumption over another. I thought their report was very effective at showing, look, just because someone buys and reads print or buys and reads digital doesn't mean they don't Go use the other format. It depends on the context, or you know, their particular moment in time, uh, pricing, and I think it showed a much more dynamic book consumer than what publishers typically think of. Which you know, the they often get accused of catering to you know the white female book club reader, um, <laughs> and that's that's just a tiny percentage of the market.
0: Well, I also think that we live in a world of readers. We Relate to other readers, but we don't. We don't. We kind of go on anecdata rather than mm-hmm. data. Data. I've often heard from people who've said, "Well, my child, who's thirty years old now, reads books and hates eBooks. Therefore, there's hope for the future." Um, and well, I could look at what my kids do too, but I don't think that's meaningful necessarily. And, and, but I think it does point to the Lack of data, and a and and also a sort of self fulfilling prophecy that because we live in a world of readers, we exist. Whether we live, in, you know, I'm not just talking about New York publishers who live in a world of deeply loved books, but uh, publishers all over America. They are in communities of readers. You know, if you're in Cleveland, like Andrew Beck and Belt, or if you're in uh, Port Townsend, or if you're in Minneapolis, you are living in a in a book community yeah. and relating to a book community. That's what fostered you, and that's why you're there. But that's not going to help you understand what people are reading in small towns where there aren't publishers, there aren't bookstores, there are only libraries in Amazon for right. the most part. To um, serve their needs and I think that's a real struggle I mean I, it, even when you go to ala which where 30,000 librarians are it, it's not like you can talk to all of them and find out what's really happening uh, in their world and um, it's just so frustrating not to really know what is what's out there and yes. and you know how do you respond because we on one level it's okay because, we are talking to readers, and as long as there still are readers, we're okay. But how many, and who are they, and what do they want? You know, we we actually do not know.
1: Yeah, the, as you were talking, it, uh, I was just thinking about Brandon Sanderson, who has just come off of this phenomenally most successful Kickstarter in its history. I think he ended up with like forty-one million earned for yep. his book-based Kickstarter. And if you look into some of the interviews he's done about his success and, you know, you know, the, the very long road leading to this moment, you know, he's, he's not an overnight success story. I hope everyone realizes this. Um, that he, a lot of what he's doing right now is based on his knowledge of the readers, his insight into what people would like, uh, what they enjoy about his work. Um, and he's, you know, before, prior to the pandemic, he was on the road a, a lot engaging with people in the towns and states that they live in. And I, one of the insights he came to really early in his career is that readers want the print and the ebook bundled together. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he does that with his Kickstarter, he gives people what they're looking for. And I've, it's always been frustrating to me that publishers can't figure that out. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but that goes back to what you were saying earlier also, and that is um, the disconnect between the publisher and the reader because for most trade publishers, they have to sell through resellers. Mm-hmm. And even though I think some smaller publishers are able to sell direct to consumer without raising the ire of um, retailers, the bigger publishers cannot um, without it does cause friction in the channels. And um, I think that maybe that's changing. I think it has changed quite a bit. You know, most publishers do have a small direct-to-consumer business. Um, And I think that direct-to-consumer allows you to know your customer. It allows you, if you're scaling, to um, not just sell them books, but to talk to them in a rational you know in a way that's meaningful that helps you understand your business who are my readers now it is also true having spent some time talking to direct to consumer gurus that people who buy direct from you are not the same people who buy from amazon or barnes and noble or an independent bookstore uh there is a kind of there may be some crossover relating to this idea you know sometimes i buy direct sometimes i buy from a store sometimes i buy from bricks and mortar sometimes i go online people are not only one thing they're complicated right. but in general if you buy a lot of books from xyz direct you probably don't spend a lot of time um going into bookstores um and you you might be like the reader's digest person maybe of years ago who only bought uh, direct and didn't go to stores? Maybe you didn't have a store. So anyway, I just—it's really, I think, a a—I would hope—an emerging uh, opportunity for publishers would be to go direct, to learn what that means, and to invest in it. Um, authors, some authors have done extraordinarily well by having communities. Uh, of readers that they relate to. Aside from Brandon Sanderson, lots of um, self-publishing authors, but also authors who are traditionally published have recognized that having an audience that they can talk to uh, is rewarding. It's not just um, in terms of business, but I mean, what fun to talk to the people that are reading your books. Um, It's really cool.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think so. Um, Although, you know, there are There's always going to be those writers who, uh, you know, they're like, I just want to sit and write in my garret. I don't want to deal with the
0: public. Which is perfectly (laughs) respectable. And that's one of the other, you know, some writers have said, I don't want to participate in social media because then I won't spend any time writing. I, I can't think, I can't dream, I can't make words if I'm spending so much time answering emails or writing tweets um and I think that's a fair point. There I think there's room in the world for a multitude of different ways of relating to writing, reading audiences and stuff. But there is no one and, and I you you know that, but a lot of writers are given advice. This is what you have to do. Yes. And you know, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> but that's true for publishers too, that you know, no one can tell you. Every publisher should do X, every publisher should do Y. Um, that's too complicated. <laughs> well, we're nearing the time when we should end, but I wanted to just say um, maybe, because it's been really fun talking to you, is there one thing that you want to mention? You know, something that you think is really important that we haven't talked about that mm. might be um, important?
1: We didn't touch uh, much on audio, digital audio specifically, and I think that it's going to be a very interesting space to watch because of how different business models have emerged in Europe or really the rest of the world versus the United States and the UK or the Anglophone market. So in the Anglophone market, we've got Audible, Amazon as the dominant player, and it's basically an a la carte, even though it's a subscription, you're, you know, you get your one audiobook per month, and you pay a set fee for it. Whereas over in Europe with Storytel, uh, which is the dominant player there, it's an, it's a subscription service, all you can listen to for one mm. price. Mm. And, you know, Storytel, Audible, Spotify, and there are other players, they're all getting into audiobooks, spoken word podcast and we're seeing the blurring of lines between podcast and audiobook there's there's just a lot of territory being fought over and I think these business models are going to really start uh, creating some friction for publishers about what you know how are they going to handle this and make all of their titles available um, and then get the biggest possible audience while retaining the revenue or the profits that they want. So it's just a really huge question on my mind as those services get bigger. I mean, audio has been one of the biggest growth areas for traditional publishing uh, in the last five years or so, and it's been as ebook sales have declined, audiobook sales have gone up. That's true. Um, And and I think it was predicted maybe this year next audiobook will outpace ebook sales. Entirely, so it's just. I think it's going to continue to be a really critical format, and these competing business models. Are, I, it's not that I think one's going to win, but I think the a la carte method is. It's a. T- it's becoming a tougher and tougher sell. Is you know, as consumers, we're expecting things on a subscription right. basis.
0: Right. Well, we've been trained with Netflix and mm-hmm. all the streaming services that you can pay a flat fee and then surf. Watch whatever you feel like. And it certainly feels more consumer-friendly and comfortable, I would think. Uh, But it's hard to change a single dominant player's Mm
1: -hmm. position
0: when it's so difficult for any competition to arise as well. So that's an interesting thought. I hadn't really thought about that, so I'm really glad you brought that up. I'm very interested in audio, obviously, and (laughs) podcasting and audiobooks. Um, and their challenges because so many smaller publishers have really had trouble um, with the economics of um, audiobook production where they would like to do it themselves. Uh, but I think AI, the rise of AI is no small thing and could radically change. And I, and I know there you know we have some misgivings about AI voicing. But I think the more it happens, the more it's done, the better it gets. It's an iterative process, and it's getting better all the time. And it would become – I think once that becomes acceptable to the producer and to the re- listener, I think that'll radically change everything.
1: Yeah, it's going to be huge, and I think it's going to happen faster than anyone yes. anticipates.
0: Yeah, usually it, it's sort of – it it's, it's slow, and then it's fast. Yes. You know, like <laughs> – what did they so I think that's what somebody said about bankruptcy. How does it? How does bankruptcy happen? Slow then really fast. Uh, <laughs> I think that's how innovation happens. You know, it it's sort of you don't see it coming, and then all of a sudden there it is. So I think that was a good point. I'm really glad you mentioned it. Well, thank you, Jane. It's been this is really fun getting a chance to talk to you. I love reading Hot Sheet, and um, thank
1: you.
0: Um, I you know this is this has been really good for me. So. Thank you again.
1: My pleasure, David. Thank you for the invitation.
0: This is Publishing Talks, a podcast about books and publishing. I'm David Wilk, your host. I've been talking to Jane Friedman of janefriedman.com and Hot Sheet, which I recommend reading right away.